Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevi. My next guest is Deborah Bauer, and we will be discussing her book, Marianne is Watching, Intelligence, Counterintelligence, and the Origins of the French Surveillance State, published by University of Nebraska Press in 2021. Deborah Bauer is an Associate Professor of History at Purdue University in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Her research has focused primarily on the cultural, diplomatic, and military history of France and the French Empire at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Deborah Bauer, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk about my book today. So yeah, we usually like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's kind of the exciting backstory behind uh, writing this book, because this is a very interesting topic. Well, thank you. Um, So I am an associate professor of history at Purdue University, Fort Wayne in Northeast Indiana. Um, My backstory to teaching history and studying history and writing this book um, is a bit convoluted, as probably a lot of ours are. Um, I originally thought I was going to be a lawyer. I moved to France after I graduated from undergrad to work at a law firm for a while. And it turned out after working with lawyers for a couple of years, I decided that wasn't for me. Um, but I stayed in France a bit longer just to keep having a work permit and live the excitement of life in Paris. And in order to get that work permit, I ended up in doing a year of history known as a maitrise, which is not quite the equivalent of a master's, but close enough. And during that year, I was researching something called the Caillot Affair, which was a scandal in France at the beginning of the 20th century. And I had so much fun in the archives, reading about these historical figures, thinking about the past, that somewhere along the lines, I said, forget law school and let's join the lucrative profession of professional historian. Um, So that led me to my PhD, which at the time seemed like a great way to get somebody else to send me back to France from time to time to do research. And indeed, that was the case. Um, But as for the topic itself and spies, you know, um, as I said, I was interested in this Cayo affair and a couple of the offshoots from that affair involved spies and involved espionage. And so as I was trying to think of what my dissertation topic might be, I thought I would work perhaps on scandals generally. Those scandals turned out to be kind of economic banking scandals that weren't really that interesting to me. And so I thought about pursuing a couple of these spy stories. And as I uncovered pieces of them, I realized that I didn't actually understand who was doing the spying, what that was all about, what these institutions looked like, and trying to find secondary material on that was proving a challenge. There really wasn't anything, especially in English, that would explain what intelligence looked like, what spying looked like at the end of the 19th century. 
And so I thought, this is great. Nobody's written on this. I'll write on this, um, which as a grad student feels fun and exciting until you figure out why it is that nobody has written on it. And in my case, you know, I would find notes in the archives that said things like burn this note after you read it, um, which, <laughs> as we know, it means there were probably a lot more things that had been burned. Um, you know, it was a challenge finding other historians to talk about this with there just wasn't that interesting to French historians at the time. Um, I'm super happy actually these days there's really a large community of intelligence historians who are studying intelligence, intelligence history in so many different time periods, so many different places, which unfortunately wasn't the case when I was a grad student. Um, but I have found that community now and I have dug into the French history community and that's brought me, I suppose, brought me to my dissertation, which was this topic of intelligence in France. And it was that topic that then became Marianne is watching. Yeah, when you said uh, that one thing about bur the burn this note after you read it, it immediately made me think of uh, that famous phrase, this message will self-destruct from Mission Impossible. <laughs> so it's almost like the 19th century equivalent of right and then you have to wonder so the things that i'm reading here in the archives this means that either somebody didn't do their job and didn't burn this um and makes you wonder what else you're missing of all the things that actually had self-destruct had self-destructed along the way so yeah so what type of sources were you able to actually get access to like what type of archives uh were you able to get access to yeah thanks i mean it turns out even though a lot um, was destroyed either by, you know, efficient agents who actually destroyed their work, or we know that a lot of the French intelligence material was destroyed first during World War One, and then especially um, during World War Two, as the in in the beginning before the Nazi invasion, to get rid of all that material. But that said, there still was plenty to find. I do kind of think of myself a bit as an archive rat, and I love I love archives. There's something about being surrounded by those old boxes of old papers and going through that handwritten material. So there were a number of different archives that I used for this project. The one I probably spent the most time in was the military's archives, which is located um, at a beautiful place, a Chateau de Vincennes on the outskirts of Paris. And in the army's archives is where I found the material for a couple of the different military institutions that practiced intelligence, the Deuxième Bureau, the statistical section. It's also where I found material on colonial intelligence gathering missions. Um, whereas, and we'll talk about this, but whereas the army practiced intelligence, they were certainly not the only ones. So I tracked down intelligence gatherers from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I went to their archives, looked at trying to figure out what the diplomats were doing in terms of, of intelligence gathering. The police, of course, also gathered intelligence. So you have in Paris, a couple different types of police agencies. There was the centralized prefecture of police in Paris, and I spent quite a bit of time working in those archives. And from there, I saw police agents who were sent as 
spies or agents to European cities abroad, as well as those police agents who were tracking supposed threats domestically. Um, there is other police material housed at the Archive National, the French National Archives. So I read those are kind of the more national police forces, not necessarily the police, Paris police forces. And the National Archives also held all the judicial files, a lot of press clippings. Um, and finally, I didn't want to limit my study to Paris. So I tried to pick a couple of regional archives near some of the border areas that I thought would tell me a bit about what kind of intelligence was being gathered um, close to the borders. So I spent a bit of time in some archives in Nancy on the eastern border with Germany and, um, you know, a, a a tragic post down in Nice on the Mediterranean. Um, someone's got to do it. But uh, to learn what the French were gathering about the Italians and um, intelligence about Italy. So those were the archival sources that I looked at. And then I also read tons of different newspapers, newspaper articles. I'd say that I was trained at UCLA kind of as a cultural historian. So yes, I wanted to gather the institutional background of these agencies, but I also was really asking myself what spies and spying meant to the larger culture in France at the turn of the 20th century. So for them, I looked at newspaper articles, I looked at novels and memoirs, um, and these kind of, I guess, trashy, scandalous, tell-all kind of um, you know, versions of yellow journalism. I read military treatises. <laughs> I read legal treatises. I read, you know, other people who were writing historical analyses and reflections of what espionage had meant in France over time. Um, and then, of course, I used lots and lots of secondary scholarship on this period in French history, on intelligence history, military history, um, and really spent as much time as I could trying to, you know, like the agents I track, piece together all of the different clues that I could to learn about how this all went down. Yeah, that's actually one of the interesting things about intelligence. Well, actually, history in general, but intelligence history is it's like so interconnected with the diplomacy, the social history and the culture, because even during the Cold War, uh, you know, there was James Bond and that type of spy fiction. And we will and we'll get to that uh, later on in the discussion. But it's just it doesn't operate in a vacuum. It's just all very deeply uh, connected to each other. Yeah. And I'm, I'm super glad to hear you say that, because I think that's something that's in some ways a new direction that people are going. Historians, scholars are going in intelligence history. I think while you know, you're saying it does make it sound so important and obvious when you read some of, you know, there was a reason, like I said, that when I was writing my dissertation, I couldn't find that many like-minded people to talk about intelligence history with. They sort of looked at intelligence history as that older, discarded military history, diplomatic history, that stuff that's passe while we're, you know, trying to dig up gender and subalterns. And it just wasn't that interesting. But what I was able to do and what, like I said, I'm grateful for this community of intelligence historians now um, is really kind of make those connections to the larger society and culture. So I'm glad that felt like an obvious connection to you. Yeah, no, I've been uh, doing a lot of intelligence uh, history myself, but I usually focus more on the Russian and the Soviet intelligence. But I notice very obviously the parallels here. So uh, most of your book focuses on the late 19th century, the period commonly known as the Third Republic. 
But France does have a little bit of a history of intelligence or spies, and this even goes back to, say, uh, Louis the Fourteenth, maybe even before, but we'll start at Louis the Fourteenth. continues on to the Revolution and Napoleon. Uh, what is uh, a little bit, can you give us a little bit of a summary, kind of like a little bit of a background uh, summary yes, of I'll that period? Yes, I'll try to be very brief with this, but um, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's one of these aphorisms that says spying is the second oldest profession, goes back to the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, human beings always wanted to know what was going on um, with their friends and their neighbors. But the way that I look at the history of intelligence intelligence during this earlier period um, is kind of three ways that intelligence during that earlier period is ad hoc, it's temporary, and it's personal. So what do I mean by that? Um, the kings, you mentioned Louis the 14th, Louis the 15th, those even before him, um, they relied on people they trusted. So that's the personal aspect. They relied on diplomats, ambassadors, military attaches. Louis the 15th even had his own entourage of agents called the King's Secret, the Secret des Rois. Um, and these were people that kind of ingratiated themselves into foreign courts or foreign mil militaries, picked up on whatever gossip, rumors, information they could, brought it back to the crown and you know it was personal in a way too because that helped them it helped advance their interests within those royal societies um, but because it was personal that helps understand why it was temporary so i mentioned the king's secret of louis the 15th that was a group that was disbanded after he died same thing with military intelligence we know from military treatises that warfare during the 16th 17th centuries employed people collecting information, going out and doing reconnaissance, scouting the land, whatever it was, trying to figure out what they could about their enemy while they were in the midst of battle. And certainly that proved helpful from time to time. But in each of these cases, after the war ended, that military intelligence group would have been disbanded. So again, the temporary, the personal and the ad hoc. We do see intelligence kind of advance as the century goes on. By the time we get to the Napoleonic period, um, we know that Napoleon uses a variety of people as spies on his military campaigns and apparently to some good success. He also steps up the domestic policing considerably, creating the position, for example, of police prefects. And while Napoleon is certainly no longer Louis XIV, he's not, you know, this um, this, this French monarch, he is still an emperor. This is still an imperial authoritarian regime. And so Napoleon is interested in using intelligence and using the police to secure his own power. And again, also perhaps for good reason. We know of at least one assassination attempt on his life um, while he ruled. But he really steps up the kind of domestic intelligence by sending his police in to infiltrate meetings. They censor the press. They censor speech. They're always watching people considered suspicious or a threat to the regime. And that kind of continues on throughout the post-Napoleonic era, the period of the restoration of the Second Empire. And again, throughout all of that earlier period, intelligence is not really professionalized and there isn't particularly an interest in doing so. And part of that is because spies and spying are viewed with this negative, disreputable reputation. So it's going to take 
a number of changes before we see French leadership and France as a nation decide that they're ready to professionalize and institutionalize intelligence um, and, you know, trying to get people on board to support them as they're doing it. Now, one of the major uh, factors that contributed to this uh, change in need for intelligence was the Franco-Prussian War. And of course, France you know, bitter had a bitter loss to the Prussians there. And that in a way kind of not only caused a, a need for reform in the military, but also kind of the need for a modern intelligence service that we would recognize uh, today. Can you explain what was the impact of the Franco-Prussian War? Yeah, absolutely. The Franco-Prussian War is a major turning point in this period of French history and in the history of intelligence in several ways. So first of all, um, the Franco-Prussian War ends the Second Empire. That was a regime under control of Napoleon's nephew, known as Napoleon III, um, and paves the way for the Third Republic, which is a new regime with new leadership and new ideology. And that actually was kind of interesting to me as I started this out, because the Third Republic, with the heritage of the French Revolution and everything that we like to associate with democracy of like openness and liberalism and transparency, those are not words that you throw out when you talk about espionage and spying and intelligence. So, you know, kind of reconciling this open, you know, not an authoritarian regime, a democratic regime with the professionalization of intelligence. Um, and so that was something I faced as I went along. But um, so firstly, just the Franco-Prussian War changes the politics in France. Secondly, um, as you kindly pointed out, for the French, it was a bitter loss. Um, the by all accounts, the defeat in the Franco-Prussian War was embarrassing for France, a really devastating loss. And that, you know, within French popular culture creates a massive reaction to Germany. You know, what Prussia, obviously, of course, you know, becomes Germany in the decades that follows. Um, and it's really going to cause a lot of resentment and frustration and building a desire for revenge within French culture facing Germany. So the Franco-Prussian War, the loss for France, sets Germany up as a new kind of hereditary enemy, which then makes Germany the central character in this spy mania that unfolds during the decades that follow. So looking more specifically in connection with the army, again, as you pointed out very nicely, the French loss in the war forces military planners to regroup, reorganize and figure out what went wrong. And they've got plenty of explanations for why they lost this war that they absolutely did not expect to lose. But one of those explanations that takes hold in popular imagination is, well, the Germans were spying on us. Um, and there's this whole, you know, rumor bill that spreads. And I read about it in the newspapers and I read about it in these, you know, spurious tell-all accounts. And you also read about it within the military archives. But there's this sense that, oops, we weren't paying attention. Bismarck sent his spies to France. They gathered all this information about us. And even though we are a republic, even though we are chivalrous and French and so worthy um, that we would never do something as horrible as to spy, let's be real, we need to compare with um, those Germans. And if they're gonna do it, we need to copy them and do it too. So, 
you know, psychologically, I don't think it's actually true that Bismarck had this mass spy network <laughs> that all the French newspapers talked about. Um, but that's important that that becomes crystallized in the French imagination as something that needs to be countered. Um, so what happens is we do see a massive reorganization of the military facing the very real defeat that they had. And, you know, while a lack of intelligence may have not been the thing that caused their defeat, the military wasn't super well organized prior to the Franco-Prussian War. And so this is something get, that gets addressed with the new army of the Third Republic. So there's a decree that's passed on June 8th, 1871, that totally reorganizes the army. And part of that is the creation of an état-major général, um, or the general staff, the high command. And within that high command, they separate it into a few different offices, one of which is the second office, or in French, deuxième, deuxième bureau. So this second office, or deuxième bureau, becomes the office within the high command, within the general staff, that is tasked with, among other things, gathering and assessing information. So in this way, we see the Franco-Prussian War as you know, this direct reaction to the military to reorganize and as reorganization create an intelligence bureau. But secondly, and, you know, again, as we talked about before, the connection with the culture, creating Germany as an enemy, creating Germany as an enemy that spies um, and kind of setting the scene um, for how to counter that enemy. Now, who were some of the major early advocates for modern intelligence in uh, France at this uh, time? Like, who were many of the main driver drivers uh, towards this process that you just mentioned? Sure, I can throw about out some names that probably you or not even anybody that studies French history have ever heard before, so they'll be glad for their moment in the sun. Um, some of those names, Theodore Jung, Emile Vincent, Jules Lual, um, he's actually a little better known. Um, some war ministers, Ernest de Sissy, Charles de Freycinet. Um, what these men have in common, so these are all men within the military um, who at various times had positions within either the Deuxième Bureau or its predecessor, which was known as the Depot de Guerre. It was a little different, but um, these were men who were very interested in the kind of intellectual and scholarly aspects of war. Their biographers talk about them as um, taken by science and taken by organization. So the fact is when they're talking about the need that France has to know the designs of not only Germany, but other European powers, that these men step forward and they bring their kind of scholarly intellectual background to talk about intelligence as a, quote, veritable specialty. So again, talking about intelligence, not as this thing from the Bible, you know, people spying, not as the ad hoc, let's gather some things and then forget about them later or pass on information that's going to get me elevated in the eyes of the king, but a specialty, you know, that looks a lot more like the modern bureaucracies that we're familiar with. Um a, a an agency where they're advocating for things like centralization, organization, specialization, training, all of which is really again going to move intelligence from that ad hoc model to something reorganized or more organized. And I'd say they did a pretty good job with this. Um, another thing that they argue that is important is for kind of the creation of an 
intelligence community within France and a community where they see the army as needing to be at the head of that. And they were less successful there and that we don't have during this period an organized community. As I mentioned before, there's also diplomats and police and lots of different people gathering intelligence. So it doesn't become centralized, but the army does manage to take the lead. And the army does manage in a way to kind of direct and control some of the intelligence gathering that these other bodies are performing. Um, so one more thing to mention in answering this question is that one of these men, the second one I mentioned, Emile Gonson, who heads the Dizian Bureau right after it's created, begins to write a lot about the need to create something even more specialized than where he sees the Dizian Bureau. The Dizian Bureau is this larger body that gathers, assesses, reproduces, analyzes intelligence, but it's really, you know, it's quite broad. It's also history and map making and a lot of other things. So what Vincent starts talking about is this need for much greater specialization and for a smaller body that has even greater independence than the Dizian Bureau, whose job is really gonna be collecting intelligence. And as a result of his efforts, this body does emerge. And we don't have an actual date, although I'm going with 1874 is about when this body comes out. This body is known as the statistical section and the statistical section is much smaller than the Dizian Bureau, um, but has the job of really doing a lot more of the spying, the intelligence gathering that we think of um, as being performed by agents during this time. But one of the things that's notable about this section is that it did develop a bit spontaneously, and it was the kind of organization that a lot of these scientific men that I described envisioned. But one of the things they thought was important and necessary for it to be successful was autonomy. And that's autonomy in decision-making, autonomy in spending. And so they get this. And what develops for this statistical section is this smaller service that even though it's technically linked to the Desian Bureau and technically linked to the high command, the general staff, um, that it operates in a lot of ways independent from them. The officers of this statistical section often go directly to the war minister or directly to the president of the Republic with their information. So we get this service kind of emerge without a lot of checks and balances, without, you know, if you have studied intelligence, especially US intelligence in the Cold War, you know, the church committee and the need for accountability and um, stuff like that. There is nothing like that in connection with this statistical section. And again, as I argue, it very much is the design of these men who nobody has heard of um, in, in the years since. So that is something that's important. And then, as I said, this issue that the army is not the only game in town and that there are other groups practicing intelligence and that we don't see them all kind of pooling their resources at this time. You know, it was interesting when you were talking about how they were influenced by this idea of scientific organization. It kind of reminded me, well, this is also the time when August Comte is coming up with positivism. Was that like an uh, like an intellectual influence on them in their organization? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you can make those connections. There was a lot. I mean, this is 
right in line with a lot of moves towards professionalism at the end of the 19th century. There's a lot of historians who have looked at the medical field and the policing field um, and really this sense that we need to professionalize and, you know, bring in our science and they use that in comparison with where they see German science going. So, yeah, you're you're right on there. Now, another key factor was uh, General uh, Georges Boulanger. Is that how you pronounce it? Georges. I do apologize for my uh, La France. La France. Oh, he doesn't hear you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a very important figure uh, during this time because uh, I think he, he was a general in the army and he was also a major proponent of like French patriotism, the League of uh, Patriots. I believe that's how you pronounce, uh, translate it. Uh, the League des Patriots. Yep. Yes. So, okay. So, um, Boulanger, yeah, he was actually quite unexpectedly a big pivot for me in the story. So um, unlike my scientific loving proponents of intelligence from the previous question, Boulanger is somebody who is very well known um, to French history. But he is well known um, for what you have introduced. He is well known for the affair bearing his name, um, which actually takes place a couple of years after his years as war minister. Um, and yeah, I mean, as you point out, what's going on at the time is, so the Third Republic, this democratic regime has been put in place in the ashes of Napoleon III's Second Empire, but it's not super popular. And there is a lot of frustration from both sides of the political spectrum, particularly on the extremes to overthrow this new democratic regime, which is a bit weak, especially in its early decades. Um, and they're looking for something new. And there is absolutely this contingent, as you mentioned, on the far right, you know, name everything that comes to mind. They're anti-Semitic, they're xenophobic, they're anti-democratic, um, and they are looking for somebody to take them, lead them, in their path towards this right-wing movement and ideally overthrow the government, some kind of military coup. And they settle on Boulanger and he becomes the kind of standard bearer of this really racist, xenophobic movement for a little while. Um, wins a bunch of elections, but ultimately fails and kind of creeps off in disgrace and actually commits suicide on the grave of his mistress. Um, but... <laughs> He is a central figure in my story before all that happens. And I actually found it pretty interesting. One of the early conference papers I gave when I was still in graduate school was about kind of looking at him and this tendency towards xenophobia and a right wing movement a little differently. And that, you know, you can go into a library and find books and books on Boulanger and none of them will talk about his connection with intelligence. So, you know, there's an aha, I can say something. Um, and for me, once I started digging through the archives and reading things that he's writing, the notes he's left within the military, I see this very paranoid war minister. So I should say he becomes Minister of War in the Freycinet government. He was appointed in January of 1886. So that Boulanger affair, I believe, is like 1889. Um, but he's appointed War Minister in 1886. And pretty shortly, he starts getting the sense of the importance of intelligence. And I can see it in his notes. I can see it in the people who 
who he's working with, see it in the people who he's appointing to certain positions. And he really wants to kind of micromanage the intelligence. So there's the military attaches who are technically under the purview of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but he says, no, how about you report to me with your intelligence? Um, and there's the police that are catching spies. He says, no, how about you bring that into the war ministry? Um, so he's really taken with intelligence and its uses and what it can do. But as he's learning more about intelligence, he's becoming more paranoid and he's becoming more concerned with espionage not being practiced by French agents abroad, but espionage as is being performed by Germans against France. So we see him getting really worried about leaked documents. And he passes a bunch of decrees um, within the military saying, you know, Nobody can share any information. And if it comes out, I'm going to hold your superiors responsible and really kind of, you know, cracking the whip on the thought that any information about French military planning could escape. So seeing in his notes this clear air of paranoia that I think leads him to make a couple of really important decisions that are going to shape the way that French espionage and counter espionage takes place in the next several decades. So one of the first things he does is to pass a law against espionage in April of 1886. And I can talk more about that if you're interested. Um, but that's one of the that is only within the first couple months of his tenure as war minister. Um, then he starts introducing a bunch of new kind of policing bodies, both within the war ministry and within the interior ministry, whose job is counter espionage looking for more spies on French soil. He's also responsible for appointing a new head of the statistical section, a man named um, Colonel Jean-Conrad Sander, who is also a name um, kind of notorious within the annals of French history in this period, but who becomes you know, very much a spy master in his own right. Um, so there's some figures, I'm not gonna remember them right now, but in terms of resources and funding for the statistical section, that it grows more under Boulanger, who only serves as war minister for a year and a half. He's out in May 1887 when the government changes. Um, so intelligence in France under him grows more than it had and more than it would for the rest of the time. And the budget triples or something like that. So yes, he is a very important character. And I'm glad you picked up on him as someone significant to this story. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, espionage law of 1886. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, you mentioned also like the political extremes in France, which kind of was causing a lot of internal discussion, because also that even gets to the birth of the Third Republic with the Paris Commune of 1870-71. Uh, yeah, and also France was also one of the birthplaces. Well, it was the birthplace for modern radical politics with the French Revolution, 1789, but also you also had like early socialists and anarchist movements in there. And then also on the right, you mentioned uh, Boulanger's connection to it, but there was also Charles Moat and the Action Francois, who were like dedicated monarchists who wanted to restore the monarchy or what they perceived to be. So in some ways, this was this is also another angle to why there's a need for the intelligence uh, services. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on, on that point? I mean, the extremism in France in this period, I think, drives a lot of the 
public reaction to why intelligence becomes necessary um, in that, yeah, you have these extremes from both sides. You have an anarchist movement that is planting bombs throughout the 1890s and assassinating people. You have a right-wing movement that is extremely xenophobic, extremely anti-Semitic. Um, and as I talk about in the book, and we can talk about more as you like, if you like, um, these sides want to find scapegoats they want to find enemies and they want to find targets. And this kind of elision of terms of subversive, whether it's political subversive or traitor, whether it's a traitor to the nation, whether it's an invasion from outside or an enemy within, it just becomes much easier to throw those labels onto different groups and to have them stick. Um, the politics of the Third Republic are also interesting because they're so fragmented and because it's a parliamentary regime, a parliamentary democracy, is that governments change a lot, right? It's really easy to overthrow a government. You have coalition governments that can come together and form, but once an issue comes from one of the extremes, they might be responsible for toppling the whole government. So in some ways, this makes the Third Republic very unstable. But the irony is that you have a political class where you have a lot of the same people um, that are circulating in and out of these various minister ministries. What was interesting to me is that as the ministries are changing and as the governments are shifting because of the pressure from these extremes, you have these kind of ordinary everyday, you know, police heads or lieutenant colonels, people like that who remain in place. And as such, they actually garner a lot of power in their roles, more so than the leadership above them. Um, and I do, I think that it is all a cause of this instability that's caused by this wild kind of political environment. Yeah, just for any listeners who might not be familiar with this context of the Third Republic, I thought we could discuss No, thank you. It is a definitely uh, <laughs> not something so everyone... So you mentioned the uh, the espionage law of 1886. Uh, could you explain what more in depth what that was and its impact? Yeah, and I actually will make a nice connection to the question you just asked, um, which is one of the things that's so interesting to me about this espionage law. So I'll just you know define it really quickly. Is that it's a law that um, is put forward by Boulanger. He brings it forward in March of 1886. Um, it passes through the Chamber of Deputies in April of 1886. And the thing that I think is so interesting is that it passes through the Chamber of Deputies unanimously. And so, you know, first of all, to have a chamber that's made up of politicians of all stripes. Second, I think that every single listener can understand <laughs> that politicians love to no disagree with each other. So to have anything pass through a divided political house unanimously says a lot about the culture in which this, um, you know, whatever it might have been. So in our case, the espionage law, that tells us that people were really scared about spies and really wanted to address the issue of spies at the time. So this law is basically a law that contained about 12 or 13 provisions that just went over infractions for espionage. And it was actually pretty lenient, all told. So the maximum possible penalty for being convicted for espionage under this law was like five years in prison, 5,000 francs. I don't know how much that 
is worth. But, you know, compared with, I think we think about being convicted for espionage, um, we think about the death penalty, right? That was not even on the table. Five years was a maximum for this. Um, so the law itself was, as I say, pretty lenient, but to me, it's notable for what it represents and what it ushered in. So firstly, I already mentioned, it represents just this general concern of the entirety of the population that spies are something that we should be scared of. So the language that's used in the debates around passing this law talks about it both, you know, within the chamber itself and then in the press that's commenting on it, talks about this legislation as a central piece of national defense, right? So that's equating espionage with being a major harm to the nation and that it's really important to find and push spies um, in order to protect the nation. This is the first time in French history that you have the crime of espionage defined in the civil sphere, civil sphere. So certainly there's within military codes and military law um, is where you find in, you know, clauses talking about what happens if you find a spy. But this is the first time in French history that this is a law on the books for ordinary people. So again, I think that's kind of telling too in the changes of how people are perceiving espionage and how important it is. It brings the issue of espionage much more into the press and into the public sphere. Now you get many more, you can have these spies being accused, being captured, brought before the courts, convicted. And of course, in this era of the mass press, that's big news, that's scandal. We still love <laughs> reading about spies. So they certainly did then. Um, and this law really serves to lay the ground for a lot of these future divisions that I mentioned before that Boulanger creates um, of different bodies practicing espionage. He really uses the espionage law um, as incentive to ask for more resources and ask for more police and ask for more agents to look for spies. So all of this is, you know, pretty, pretty big deal. Um, and I should mention that while there is this massive concern for spies and the harm they could bring, there is not an actual threat of spies of the harm they could bring. So, you know, Germany, which I'll talk about more as the chief uh, threat of spies and espionage, their intelligence service is brand new too and isn't particularly good either. So um, we see through the espionage law and through reactions to it that there is this really large kind of political and public inclination to quote unquote do something about this spy problem um, that as a historian I can tell you was not actually a problem <laughs> that needed addressing. Now we primarily have talked about the French military but also French police also played a major role in intelligence during this time period. Uh, what role did they play and how did it differ from the military? Okay, great question. So the police played a very active role in intelligence gathering in this period, both within France and outside of it. Um, I mentioned before that the Paris prefecture of police actually sent men to a number of important European cities where they were observing everything around them, taking notes, and they would send these very thorough reports back to Paris. So that was fun and interesting to read. And those were kind of a mix of political, social, and military intelligence. Um, there were also police within the interior ministry, the police ministry, who were charged with surveillance domestically. So in Paris and other cities, also watching France's borders, 
Of course, Germany is the chief concern, but there were also police watching Italy and Britain. And then police were undertaking a lot of investigations domestically, following up tips about spies, watching people coming on trains, checking out who was getting what mail from the post office. So the police were certainly doing a lot of watching both in the kind of espionage and counter espionage realms. You asked about how this differs from army intelligence. Um, I would say probably the chief difference is in the content of intelligence with the military service much more inclined to discuss military things. So the military intelligence looking much more at troop placements and movements, at weapons production, numbers of cavalry, numbers of different units, access to resources, stuff like that, while the police are looking a bit more at suspects who are within France, or as I said, kind of political and social information. And another difference is that at least for a while, as I mentioned before, with army intelligence, there were few to no limits on the investigations and procedures that a body like the statistical section could carry out, while the police did have at least some semblance of more scrutiny that they were under. Uh, however, in terms of targets and process, I would say that overall it wasn't too different. And that in fact, in many ways, those two ministries, so war ministry and interior ministry, often combined forces, usually with the army service kind of in the dominant and directing position. Now, France, although it lost the Franco-Prussian War, it was still a major power in both Europe and the world. So uh, what did intelligence role play in the French geopolitics of the Third uh, Republic? And maybe we could start this discussion by how were they uh, like uh, countering the, the perceived German threat? Because even as you just mentioned, it was kind of blown out of proportion. But of course, sometimes in politics, perception is, uh, rea is uh, more important than reality. Yeah, I believe 100% that in my story, the perception is more important than reality. So this kind of sense of Germany as a threat, and especially the sense that Germany was sending spies to be an extra threat, became in a lot of ways, one more thing for France and the French people to be angry about and fearful about during this already challenging time at the end of the 19th century. Um, so in a lot of ways, I assess the intelligence that's gathered about Germany as actually more harmful to France during this period than it was helpful. Um, it was not particularly helpful because while yes, I have seen piles and piles of notes in the archives of information that military and their agents collected about Germany and the German army, it does not appear that French military planners actually used that information to their benefit when thinking about how they might fight Germany, which we know they were thinking about, certainly especially um, in the decade or two before World War One. So, um, you know, some frustrating things like I would read notes where you can see agents basically describing the Schlieffen plan, basically talking about what Germany's plans were to occupy Belgium during the war. And yet, you know, we know that Joffre and the others were caught, you know, stunned when this, when the German army swung around through Belgium instead of coming to attack France um, through the more proximate borders. So in a lot of ways, unfortunately, this kind of failure to 
use the intelligence that has gathered meant that in terms of geopolitics, in terms of French-German relations, intelligence was not actually helpful for the French army and the French state. Um, and instead, I argue that this kind of sense of foreboding that came from gathering military intelligence, the more they gathered, the more French intelligence leadership believed that France was inferior. And the more they gathered about German incursions into France and French plans and leaked documents, the more paranoid they became, which translated into this growth of counter espionage. Um, and again, I, I do argue in the book that that paranoia that you see in military documents, like I outlined with Boulanger, did seep into the population, contributing to larger degrees of xenophobia and threat perception and paranoia among the public as a whole. Now, part of that was also in terms of countering Germany, they were also trying to use intelligence to help build alliances, like uh, I believe also with uh, Great Britain and then also Russia uh, eventually, which kind of helps lead up to World War One. And of course, we'll get to that so uh, soon enough. But yeah, could you kind of explain this connection uh yeah, definitely. And I would say that in this sense, um, perhaps the intelligence was more helpful than the than the military countering a military threat from Germany. But sure, sharing information seemed like a great way to make friends. And we know that what France desperately needed at the end of the 19th century was friends, especially prior to the Entente Cordiale with Great Britain, which was 1904. Um, France recognized that with an ascendant Germany, um, she was going to need more allies. And there were a couple of instances that I outline in the book where France used intelligence to get closer to Russia. So perhaps as a Russianist, this is where <laughs> your, your eyes perked up. Um, but the French intelligence shared um, a number of different pieces of information with Russian leadership, um, stuff about plans that Bismarck might have made, locations of German forts. And then we already talked a little bit about anarchism, but certainly international anarchism and international socialism was a concern for Russia. So sharing um, with the czarist regime news of those networks of you know the nihilists and the dissidents that might have been in Switzerland or in France. So sharing information with Russia was definitely a good call for France and French leadership. And arguably it did help lay the groundwork for that um, alliance, the Franco-Russian alliance in 1894, that really of course changed the balance of power in Europe at the end of the 19th century. And they also did share information with Britain after that. I mentioned the Entente Cordiale. So that was 1904. So that gave at least a decade prior to World War I of intelligence sharing with, uh, with Great Britain, which is interesting because if you study intelligence, you know, in World War One and World War Two, you hear about the special relationship with British intelligence and American intelligence. So this was maybe a precursor to that, having a bit of a maybe less special, but kind of special relationship between Britain and France in um, coming closer and sharing information that they have. Well, it might have been special because they spent uh, the last few centuries literally fighting each <laughs> That's other. That's true. So. That makes it more special. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's like, oh, it's even extra special. That's right. Could, no, that's a great point. Yeah. It's like, oh, we forgive you for Waterloo and all that. <laughs> Let's go back to the Norman invasion. Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so the last area that French intelligence played a key role was in colonialism, because France was second only to Britain in terms of having a major colonial empire during the 19th century, uh, primarily in Africa, French West Africa, uh uh, pretty much covered almost half the continent and then there was also french indochina which of course becomes very famous uh later on for various reasons <laughs> but uh yeah uh how did french intelligence aid the, the the french efforts at colonialism during this time period yeah great question um and while the colonies are not the focus of my book it was important for me to ask that question as i it's a good question and to really dig into what if any efforts intelligence gatherers played in that colonial project for France, because it was important for France and, you know, connecting it back to the Franco-Prussian War. This is a time when France was feeling pretty defeated and feeling emasculated by that defeat. And during the 1880s and the 1890s, the colonies and the empire sort of appeared to offer some kind of palliative to make the French people feel better. So any help they could get at conquering and controlling those populations would be welcomed. So it's well known that knowledge and power go together. And in the case of the colonies, the French recognized that they needed to learn about and understand the populations that they were hoping to control. There was actually a precedence for this earlier in the 19th century. So you mentioned French West Africa and French North Africa. Of course, the first toehold that France gets in Africa is in conquering Algeria in the 1830s. So that's an era before this kind of later period of colonization under the Third Republic. Um, but as part of that earlier colonization of Algeria, there actually was a unit known as the Arab Bureaus or Bureau Arabe, um, staffed by the military, headed by a man named Marshal Bougeot, who was one of the guys who have written a couple of those long military treatises that I've read talking about the importance of intelligence and the importance of using spies. He's been at a time when everybody else was shunning and rejecting the practice. So Bougeot and his Arab bureaus set out to learn about the population in Algeria. And by learning about them, learning how best to control them, which groups were going to be more favorable, which groups were going to be more hostile, etc. And during my period, then the Third Republic, we see that repeated in a couple of different places. So I spend a little bit of time talking about first Tunisia in the early 1880s, and then Morocco in the early to mid 1890s, when the French army sends some of its agents down again, first to Tunisia, then later to Morocco to learn about these places, learn about the people there that they hope to control, and also learn about the competition. So in Tunisia, for example, there were a lot of Italian settlers that were already there. Italy was hoping to make Tunisia into its own colonies. The French got there, I won't say first, but got there more forcefully. Um, and there's this intelligence unit down there after France kind of begins to declare Tunisia a protectorate to figure out who's going to be on France's side, who's going to be opposed. Um, and that, I think, is really helpful for France in really laying the groundwork for control in Tunisia. 
And likewise, Morocco is a place where the French are trying to decide how involved or not they want to be in the 1890s. And you have these intelligence officers writing these lengthy documents about the resources in Morocco as plentiful and worth exploiting, about the leadership in Morocco as useless and easy to trounce. And so with reports like this, we can see how people within the French government, within the colonial lobby might have read these reports and said, well, you know, let's go for it. So I definitely saw intelligence gathering as pretty central to that, that project of empire. Um, and then, you know, I know from the other histories that I've read by other scholars that it really does continue as a means of understanding, controlling and exploiting those indigenous populations. Now, were there any connections between French intelligence and the colonies and the French Foreign Legion? Because I would think, especially with the recruitment of foreigners, they would be able to kind of recruit spies. And also because that was a major force used in French colonialism. Was there like a kind of relationship or connection that you were able to uncover in your research or? Not that I have seen. I have not done a lot of work into the French Foreign Legion. I've been looking at them lately um, in terms of the the um, conquest of Madagascar, actually, but I don't see the legionnaires as necessarily being turned to for intelligence. So perhaps there were, um, but if there was, then maybe it goes in the category of documents that have been destroyed or burned there. Yeah, that was just a question that came to my mind listening to your uh, last answer. So, uh, so uh, there was also what you call the the Lux affair, the Lux affair. Uh, what was that? Yeah, I'll call him Lux. I don't know. He might be Lux. Again, he's not around to correct us, but um, <laughs> L-U-X. So Captain Charles Lux, um, he was the head of an intelligence bureau in Belfort, which was a small city along France's eastern border with Germany. And his, what I would call the affair, is kind of testament to the evolution of intelligence over this period that I look at, because this affair is really just a couple of years before World War One breaks out. And what happens is it's 1910. And Lux, one of the things that he's most interested in learning from Germany is about the construction and development of Zeppelins, right? Those dirigible balloons. This is the very beginning of kind of this version of image intelligence, image where you can fly over and see what's going on. Um, and so he had a source that worked within this Zeppelin factory, just kind of across the border from where he was in Belfort. And this source was going to share some information with him. So the two had set a meeting and Lux had left, you know, left Belfort in disguise to go meet with his source. But his source turned out to be an agent provocateur or double agent or whatever um, fun intelligence term we want to give him. Um, meaning that he was just a plant to lure Lux over the border. And once Lux left his uh, cozy immunity in France and traveled into Germany, he was shortly after arrested. He was arrested, charged with intelligence gathering and with trying to lure and provoke German German soldiers, German citizens into sharing information with France. He denied it all, but it was futile. 
the German counterintelligence already had lists of <laughs> agents that he had met with, you know, the meeting times, all the rest. So they bring him before a court. He goes to trial. He is convicted and sentenced to jail for six years in a fortress in a city that was called Glotz. It's no longer called Glotz. It's over in what I believe is Poland now, um, but locked up in this fortress and, you know, throw away the key. But this affair is notable for a couple of reasons. First of all, I just love it. And I really appreciate that you asked me about it because there are very few good stories in my book and my research that could be turned into a Hollywood movie. Um, unfortunately, when I was writing it, friends were always asking me for the the juice and all the good spy gossip. I think all of us are used to the Cold War where there's just daring feats of bravado and, you know, juicy, great stories. And sadly to report, my period is not filled with them, but Lux, he provided that for me. So here he is sentenced in prison, locked away in this fortress far, far, far away from France's borders. Um, but he is, while they're in jail, employing all that fun trade craft that we hear people talk about who study the Cold War. So he's trying to figure out how to send messages in invisible ink. And he, so he's written his memoirs. This is how I have a lot of this information and from the notes that he sent back. But he talks about experimenting with all these different products to try to make invisible ink. The one he found worked best was when they brought a lemon as a side for him with his meal, with his meat, and he could use lemon juice to write letters. So he would write these letters, but secret messages in invisible ink that were going back to Paris and eventually were making their way to his two agents and two people officers that he knew back in France, his own brother. And so thanks to these messages that he's sending back to Paris and that they're sending back to him, he finds a way to break out of prison. So I believe they had his brother helping out. His brother sent um, a bunch of little things that he was able to use to construct a saw. With that saw, he was able to cut open the bars of his prison window. And then, you know, like I said, Hollywood movie, right? He's tying his sheets together, climbing out his window. This is actually Christmas Day, 1911. So I guess he assumed everyone else would be occupied, where he breaks out of his jail cell, climbs out from the fortress prison among the things that had been smuggled to him in the mail from the his colleagues back in France were fake papers so he had a fake passport he does the whole spy thing where he shaves his hair and dons a disguise and he makes his way from Silesia all the way back through Germany through Italy and back to France and so this is just kind of a, a great story and a great escape because once he's back in France he is a national hero um, and just the fact that we see a spy treated as a hero is one piece of evidence that things have changed. The perception of intelligence and espionage has changed, that the French are willing to view this man who has lied and deceived and done all the horrible things that spies do as someone they should be proud of and someone they should embrace. It's also important because when he comes back to France and he's interviewed by intelligence agents back in Paris and they ask him, what did you learn from your time in German prison? What did you gather? He is telling them all of these stories that confirm a narrative that the intelligence profession has been building of Germany imminently ready to start a war. 
So of course, in 1911, perhaps we might believe that some of the things he overheard were more correct. But one of the points I make in my book is that I actually read so many notes from different, whether they were the police agents, whether they were military spies, whoever it was, from the mid 1870s through, you know, 1913, 1914, saying war is about to start. Um, which, you know, it was not necessarily the case early on. And in fact, I have this great kind of counterexample. Um, there was a similar story that happened under Boulanger as war minister, um, where a French police agent had been lured across the border with Germany, um, arrested as a spy. This was a man named Guillaume Schnabel. Um, and this is 1887, and he's captured, he's brought before the German courts, tried as a spy, but Bismarck actually makes the point to release him because they don't want to deal with the international pressure of having convicted this French agent as a spy. That's 1887, whereas 1910, when Lux gets captured and convicted, even though he, in theory, kind of has more immunity than Chablis should have had, the Germans are not hesitating for a second about convicting him. So I sort of compare those two with a span of what's that, you know, almost a little over 20 years of a difference, showing again how perceptions of intelligence and espionage have changed and how both France and Germany by the first, second decade of the 20th century consider espionage much more serious and much more threatening that they're not going to release this guy. They're going to use him as an example and lock him up in prison. So it's a good story. And uh, I appreciate the chance to talk about it. Thanks. Yeah. So you kind of mentioned how this caused like a huge sensation. And one thing we do see towards the end of the 19th century is that intelligence is playing a major role in French uh, public discourse, you know, with the rise of mass politics and building a sense of national identity, especially in the sense of trying to avenge the defeat uh, in the Franco-Prussian War. So what role did intelligence or, you know, this perception of spies play in that public discourse of the time? Yeah, great question. And again, this is where my kind of training as a cultural historian, I think, brought me to really think about and investigate this place of, of espionage and intelligence and public discourse and see, track how it changed. But I would say there's pretty much two main ways that we see intelligence appearing in the public sphere. So the first way is as a cautionary tale and as a threat to the nation. So this is where we're having so many different newspaper articles, stories, books, whatever it is about sneaky Germans or traitorous French men and women, spies at the center of the narrative that places espionage as this major threat and therefore needing to be found and captured. So on one side, spies, dangerous, threatening. And then on the other side, and this is the one that I really see kind of emerge during this period is this narrative of French spies as honorable patriots. And already, you know, good transition because there's some of the two big examples I use, Schnabeli and Lux, but there are a number of others that when French spies are caught in Germany, the French flock to their defense, are happy to talk to them, um, talk about them as heroes, as patriots, as individuals who've taken on this really risky and challenging profession, but doing it for France, for the nation. And that's really some 
some descriptions that are new, but both of those. So, you know, even without recognizing the hypocrisy that we're quick to condemn um, Germans as being devious and easy to lie and, you know, quick to um, quick to deceive versus the French heroes, both of those fit into this era of mass politics and nationalism in complementary ways. They're both framing the people of France as united against an enemy and needing to act by this, you know, very Machiavellian, whatever means necessary to defeat that enemy. And as you point out, it's notable, we're talking about this at the time at the end of the 19th century, when we see a huge increase in the mass press and mass politics. Again, in France, the Third Republic, this is the first time that you have universal male suffrage. So it's important. This is the first time that the masses opinions are actually being courted and recognized um, for for how they are going to feel. So the surge of publications that are talking about espionage in either of those two ways has a lot more resonance in their kind of calls for public public involvement, whether it's supporting French spies or helping to locate and condemn foreign spies. Now, what were kind of like some of the stereotypes uh, done? You call these spy types, types in quotation marks. And <laughs> what were some of these like common stereotypes about who was a spy or who would make a good spy during this period? Yes, I do. Great. Um, and that's stuff that I found from the archival notes of army officers to policemen to newspapers that when either within the institutions themselves or within the public, when they're talking about spies, there are certain groups of individuals that are more likely to be targeted. So the number one spy type is a foreigner. And, you know, these aren't overly surprising when we think about it, especially when we know and understand the culture at the time. We've talked about the end of the 19th century as xenophobic, the rise of nationalism, all of those things that as an undergrad, when you study the causes of World War One, you see countries becoming more nationalistic. But foreigners are absolutely the number one spy type and within the kind of grouping of foreigners as Germans. Also other people that kind of speak German, Austrians, some Belgians, but the Italians. So foreigners are the number one spy type. And as such, we see that foreigners are surveilled a lot. We see decrees, police documents talking about the best way that you're going to find a spy is to find a foreigner and follow them kind of thing. There is also... Um, something that takes place during this period that I refer to as one of the most draconian uses of surveillance at the time, which is known as the Carne B. And it is basically a national list of anyone who could be considered a spy. Now, on that list could be someone French or foreign, but it was overwhelmingly foreigners who got placed on that list. They were placed on that list by police agents or military agents. The person didn't know they were being placed on that list, but if they made it onto that list, it meant they were suspect of espionage. It meant they were gonna be followed more frequently. And the aim was that if war was to break out, anybody on that list was going to be rounded up and interned or incarcerated somewhere. So that doesn't actually end up happening when World War I starts, but it had been on the table throughout that period. And some people during the war were quite angry that the government did not round up everybody on that list. Um, but we see that list as really evidence of that fear of foreigners. So type one foreigners, type two Jews. And again, 
anybody who knows much about this period knows that xenophobia is rampant and with a variety of prejudices already in the air about Jews and Jews as betraying Christ and Jews as traitors, it became quite easy to assume that Jews would be more likely to be spies. And so when we see newspapers talking about who might be a suspect, Jews come up a lot. Another category I, I identify is women, but a cer certain category of women. So in the literature, you know, scholarly literature of this time period, there's something known as the nouvelle femme or the new woman. And, you know, we've all seen the pictures, the woman wearing her breeches and riding a bicycle, somebody who wants to defy traditional ideas of femininity, who might be sexually liberal, um, and just not adhering to the stereotypes of what a woman should be. So those women were not to be trusted and were likely to be spies as well. Then we get the political subversives that we've already talked about a little bit, anarchist socialists. Um, and then the last category I identify as a spy type um, is the category, I'll borrow the language from the time, which was they were degenerates. So, you know, again, this is the time of, you know, Lombroso and all this, um, biological, you know, sort of pseudoscience that assumed that there's a criminal type and that you could see if you had a degenerate mind, you were drawn towards things like alcohol and opium and other drugs. And so these alcoholics and drug addicts and criminals might be more likely to be spies as well. Now, what all those groups had in common is membership in a larger group of being an other or being an outsider, or not typically French. So yes, these women were French, but if they were these, you know, new women that were defying their gender roles, then that meant they weren't French and they weren't there to support the nation as um, the kind of public discourse hoped they would. So I see these groups identified, as I mentioned, in archival and press accounts, novels, et cetera. But also really interesting to me was when I spent time sitting in the police archives, I read a lot of denunciation letters and the subjects of those denunciation letters were overwhelmingly within those categories. And I know that most of those people who were denounced were not actually spies because the way you would have these police files is they would start with a denunciation letter you know, dear police, this woman is letting German men into her room. She must be a spy. Um, and then the police follow her for a little bit and come to conclude. You'll see a note at the end of the file that says, actually, she's not a spy. This letter must have come from a jealous ex-boyfriend, you know, something like that. So um, just goes to show, again, that convergence of popular culture, popular fears, and the idea of spy as enemy and easy to fit into those categories. And this kind of leads into my next question, because, of course, you mentioned Jews and perhaps one of the most famous spy scandals of this time period was the Dreyfus affair. And what impact did we, we know a little bit like what impact it had on French society, but what impact did it have on French intelligence? Because, of course, this involved the accusation that Dreyfus was a spy and it turned out later on that, no, he wasn't, but. You know, and that divided French opinion on like what to do about that. 
Oh my gosh, did that divide French opinion? I mean, think of the most polarizing issue you can think of that's happening today and take that as Dreyfus Affair times 100. Um, so yeah, very, very quickly, you clearly um, are well-versed in what the Dreyfus Affair is, but just to make sure if the listeners know, um, Alfred Dreyfus was a an artillery officer, a captain, I think, in the French army. Um, at the time of the affair, he was serving as an intern within the army's general staff. Now, there had been some leaks, some leaked documents. As we know from Boulanger forward, the intelligence service is very nervous about leaked documents. And they found evidence that someone within the general staff was passing information to the German to the Germans, and in particular, the German military attache, um, a man named Schwarzkoppen, who was in Paris at the German embassy. And the way that the French found out about this is because they had an agent, a spy, this woman working for the statistical section, who they had hired her and asked her to pose as a cleaning woman working in the German embassy. And so her job would be at the end of the day when everyone went home to empty the trash cans. Uh, and one of the things she would do, you know, this is not the days of advanced paper shredders, but back then the way that people would destroy confidential documents was basically to rip a piece of paper into a bunch of different little pieces and then throw the paper into the trash can. Um, and so she would gather some intelligence or gather this trash and bring it back to her her superiors at the statistical section. And then they would, you know, do puzzles like we all did during the pandemic home for a couple months and sit there and try to figure out how they could put those pieces of paper back together. So from those notes, they realized that somebody was passing on military intelligence. They figured from the content that it probably was somebody who was an intern at the general staff. They looked at the list of possible interns, noticed one of them was Jewish. And then as you point out through your, your question and that transition, that's really important that there's already suspicion of Jews. They're already assumed to be likely spies. And so they quickly um, pin this evidence on Dreyfus and do some handwriting samples and decide that the handwriting on this document must be the same as Dreyfus's handwriting and he must be guilty. They hold a closed military trial where they bring out a couple other pieces of evidence that Dreyfus and his lawyers have not seen. And from that evidence that kind of surfaces, that evidence comes from something that's known as the secret dossier. From that evidence, the court convicts him. And notably, they don't convict him under that 1886 law because it's not harsh enough. So they use the military's law code. And under that law code, they can't, um, the death penalty is not applicable, but they send him to Guyana, I think, somewhere in, in South America. And with that, he's out of sight, out of mind, and gone. Now, what happens is some new evidence surfaces within a couple of years, and so this affair kind of rears its head a couple of years later, starting 1896 and forward. And through that affair, and that affair is where the polarization comes from, through that affair, it comes out that this secret dossier that had been used to convict him was full of forgeries and full of faked information. And to kind of put the nail in the coffin as this is going back and forth because there's retrials and you have, of course, Emile Zola writing J'accuse and bringing it into the public. 
as this is happening, one of the agents for the statistical section forges another letter. Um, and so once these forgeries get revealed, what the Dreyfus Affair does is really shine this action, the actions of the statistical section in stark display for the general public. Um, and needless to say, it's not a good look to find out that your intelligence officers have been forging documents, that this statistical section, this intelligence section is filled with, you know, obfuscation and lies and forged evidence. And so eventually, um, I mean, he's actually reconvicted, Dreyfus is reconvicted in 1899 before he's eventually pardoned, but the actions and behavior of the members of this intelligence section is so grievous that the army leadership decides to take the activity of counter-espionage away from the statistical section. So in 1889, they remove all counter-espionage duties from the section and they make them much more accountable to the Dizian Bureau. So this is in some ways kind of the culmination of the actions that I started off with at the beginning where we had these, you know, science-loving officers who really wanted to create a section with independence, hoping that that independence and that autonomy was going to allow them to practice and learn as much as they could about the German military really freely. Um, and then, you know, under Boulanger and under Sandhire, that section grew and grew in terms of counter-espionage, being afraid of German spies. But what that did, that independence, that autonomy, and that obsession with military leaks leads to this service that a lot of people within the public view as totally unaccountable and you know off their off their heels their rock or whatever the um the analogy is and so it really forces this public reckoning for a service that up until now has been very secret and very under the radar and able to act in whatever ways it can that throws a lot of negative light on french counterintelligence and on the service in particular now, also, there was the rise of uh, what we would call spy fiction during this time period. And, of course, as we know, with spy fiction, it has varying levels of uh, accuracy to or realism uh, to it. Of course, we especially know that with uh, James Bond uh, and so forth. But what was kind of the spy fiction uh, of this time period? Because it probably contributed to the popular uh, perception of espionage during this time period. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I would say that spy fiction itself was actually not particularly popular in France, especially not if you compare with um, what's going on in England at the time. I know when I was studying for my comps in grad school, we often threw out names like William LeCue and Ernst Childers, and there were all these invasion novels in Great Britain at the turn of the century. And that particular writing wasn't quite as popular in France, but there were definitely spy stories. And I would say some of them appeared in serial form in newspapers, novels, plays, even movies into the 20th century, um, writings about historical accounts from the past. Um, but the oh, you know, these writings were really xenophobic, pretty racist, not great fiction, not great reading. I'll say one that I actually enjoyed. There's a detective series from the turn of the century called Fantomas. Um, and I found it interesting. There was an entire episode of this Fantomas series dedicated to espionage and the Dizian Bureau um, revolved around this case of spying. So 
did show that a lot of the activity that had previously been very secret makes its way into the public sphere. Um, but I think in France, in France more than England, the narrative about spies came out in these newspaper accounts that were always accusing spies, talking up the trials, even if the trials didn't go anywhere. Um, and yes, some fiction, and the fiction kind of evolved with the culture. You know, at first it was fiction about unearthing German spies during the Franco-Prussian War, and then it moves on to revenge fantasies and eventually moves on to the colonies as the decades pass. So we do see a lot of that kind of reflection of the themes of spy fiction as it related to actual French intelligence, this need for revenge, inventing frustration. Um, and again, I, I loved seeing when I read archival notes, um, the officers kind of making literary allusions to some of the things that they might have read about in, in novels or in books. Yeah, you kind of made an interesting point, because I've always noticed a little bit of this overlap between spy fiction and detective uh, fiction. And especially this is also the time where in England, you know, you see Sherlock Holmes and so forth start to emerge. So it is kind of interesting that that uh, parallel there. Now, what role did French intelligence play uh, in the lead up to World War One? We did touch a little bit of that with the with the Lux affair, but you kind of delve more deeply into this uh, in the book as well. Yeah, I'll try to answer that pretty quickly since, like you mentioned, I did already touch on it. Um, you know, in some ways, I would say intelligence played less of a role than it should have in the lead up to World War One. As I mentioned, that intelligence was pretty much ignored by war planners. It doesn't appear to have been consulted very heavily by diplomats. Um, but to me, it's this counter espionage. And it's the sense that intelligence has shown France to be under threat, possibly inferior, that German spies are rampant, and these real vocal cases, and it's not only German spies there, I talk in the book about some examples of French traitors, people like Dreyfus, although Dreyfus wasn't the actual traitor, Esther Hazy was, but you know, other French men or women who really did sell secrets to the Germans, that the kind of result of a couple of decades of that kind of talk and the public proclamations in the press or elsewhere made the population, the French population, more hostile and more paranoid, leading to what I refer to in my book as a bit of a Cold War environment that in a lot of ways facilitated the entry of real war for France and for the French people. So what's kind of the legacy of uh, French intelligence from this time period, the late 19th century up till World War One, in your view? Okay, the big question, the legacy. Um, <laughs> let's see, a couple, a couple thoughts on where to go um, with this legacy. And, you know, as I as I'm kind of reflecting on these, I'd love to hear you think too, I think a lot of the legacy and the reflection that I apply to intelligence in France can be applied to um, other places and other periods. Um, so one important thing is a legacy of needing stronger relationships between intelligence communities. So I've mentioned a couple of times to you already that you have these three different groups um, collecting intelligence and performing both intelligence and counterintelligence in France during this time. But 
they don't necessarily talk to each other super well. Um, they compete with each other about who gets the information. There's this code breaking team. This is actually an area that France is pretty advanced during this period as in crypt analysis, but they don't share their findings with each other. Um, so that's problematic. I think the term that that we use contemporarily is the siloing of intelligence. I know in the US intelligence community, it was a big issue after 9-11. And people said, oh, we had all this information on attackers and plans to hire planes and training, but nobody shared them with each other. And yet now we have this information shared all over and we get 20 year olds you know, leaking information on their chat groups. Um, so I don't, I don't have the answer, but I do think that's one of the legacies is to kind of think about the fragmentation and the sharing of intelligence, intelligence communities. Another is just kind of what is referred to as civil military relations. So um, there's a historian named Douglas Porch who's written a lot about this and he's actually studied French intelligence sort of from Napoleon through to the 20th century, which gives him a lot more perspective than, than my study. Um, but he argues that one of the problems is that in France, the military culture of intelligence led to a failure to use intelligence um, more, I guess, precisely or accurately, that the culture of the military is a culture of deference. And you might have um, people not wanting to use intelligence to question preconceived notions. And so I think an improvement in that kind of culture. And again, you know, I teach a history of espionage class. This is something that we've seen, you know, we can go to the Iraq war and the weapons of mass destruction and see, you know, not wanting to question authority is one of the many things that explained that intelligence failure. So um, another legacy is to improve um, the culture of intelligence collection and especially the connections, the relations between civilians and military. Um, along with this idea of ending the siloing of intelligence was a legacy of actually needing greater specialization. So one of the things that hopefully has come out from my interview here is that all of these different bodies were actually performing both espionage and counterespionage. So that's different from intelligence as we know it in the modern world where we have the CIA whose job is to gather foreign intelligence and the FBI whose job is to work in domestic intelligence. In Britain, you have MI5 and MI6, and they have different jobs. In France, there were a lot of problems caused by the fact that you had the same people and the same bodies gathering both performing espionage and counterespionage. And the French actually did address this. And we see during World War I and after um, a bit more of specialization and fragmentation of that. Um, so a final kind of legacy I would say to take from this study of late 19th century intelligence is um, to think about what the larger goals of intelligence are. And in my book, I argued that one of the main goals of French intelligence, the larger bodies, whatever we want to call them, was the protection of French security and autonomy, and that those goals superseded any questions of stamping on liberties or stamping on privacy um, to get to it. Now, I don't want to act like this is, you know, Germany under East Germany under the Stasi, but there was some censorship um, of what could be printed. There were cases brought against 
you know, people who I would define as just innocent artists or photographers who may have gotten too close to a fort um, and gotten themselves in trouble. Um, but this legacy of accepting invasions of privacy, accepting some kinds of restrictions on liberty um, and one's own speech in the name of a greater goal of security and you know national defense, plays on the tell, whatever you want to call it, is something that we continue to see and that that porch and others have shown continue to be the case in France over time. And again, I think you and the other intelligence historians you've talked to probably could think of you know times throughout history when people's privacy, people's um, liberties have whether they've been totally trampled on or just a little bit curtailed because we're trying to protect information from making its way out um, was new during this period. So this notion that privacy and liberties should be um, given up in the name of greater security, that's an idea that like everything else in our cultures had to be constructed. And I believe that that idea really was constructed in France during this period. And we see that as one of the many legacies. I probably would like to stress one thing is uh, the intelligence is not operating in a vacuum. I know there's the common perception of it operating in the shadows, but one thing that has come out through this book and this interview is that, you know, no French intelligence was very much a reflection of France of the late 19th century, like that idea of scientific organization that was an influence of positivism. The Dreyfus affair was, you know, part of that emerging anti-Semitism and nationalism. So, and even if you look at intelligence during the Cold War, I mean, a lot of factors uh, in that was a reflection of that time. So it's not in a vacuum, even though it is in the shadows, but it is also reflections of the wider culture uh if you have any thoughts on on that i definitely have thoughts on that um and i i really think you know i don't know whether we're kind of wrapping up here but that to me seems like a good place to wrap up um because that's one of the things that i've really been thinking about a lot in terms of my own studies and then the studies that I teach to my students or talk to other scholars, colleagues about when it comes to intelligence history um, is that there is something about intelligence. And again, I think listeners who are, whether you're thinking of the CIA or MI6 or anything else, you know, KGB that you know about intelligence is there is a sense of the people that work for these institutions as being experts and experts whose job it is to uncover the truth, right? There's something about having access to secret knowledge and hidden knowledge and finding that knowledge and assessing that knowledge that gives those bodies in on one hand, a lot of legitimacy and a lot of faith and a lot of trust that these are the people who know more than any of the rest of us. These are the people who have access to the inner conversations, the inner thoughts, the inner plans, the inner dialogues, and that those people, therefore, as experts, are the ones who should be trusted. Um, and again, I'm guessing that most of our listeners <laughs> don't necessarily feel that is the case that those people are, are to be absolutely trusted, especially given you know revelations that have come out in the century and a half since um, the period in my book. Um, but it is 
important to remember that we cannot separate those people from the culture in which they they are based. So I really, really love that that's what you got out of our conversation in this book in a lot of ways, um, because the reality is that intelligence professionals are human beings. They are raised in and confronted with the same culture as the larger population, and therefore they are subject to ideas and opinions and biases that were formed by that culture. So that relates to the choice of what kind of intelligence to gather in the first place. It also relates to the way that intelligence once gathered is analyzed um, and that the product, the intelligence product is not going to be a quote unquote scientific reflection of the truth, but rather an analysis done by a human being who has lived and breathed in the world of human beings. So in my case in France at the end of the 19th century, the focus on Germany as an enemy um, was something that absolutely preoccupied the larger national culture, the larger national conversation. And when that idea was borrowed by intelligence actors, it shaped the way that they viewed Germany, shaped the choice of what they were looking for. And that again was kind of military questions. Is Germany planning a war? How ready for that war are they? Um, and once they concluded that Germany, yes, is preparing for war, yes, they're sending spies to help reinforce that war, then we get more counterespionage looking for spies. Um, so again, informs the French population about who to be afraid of and how that works. So I think that's pretty applicable with pretty much all intelligence history. And I love, I'm definitely seeing more and more historians work on this question of culture. I've been working with some people on the question of the history of emotions and how emotions factor into the decisions made by intelligence historians. So it really is a, a fun time, I think, to be involved in this subject. Well, this has been a very fascinating uh, discussion. I, I, I personally, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, we always like to end on asking our guests, what are you working on now? Okay, so I'm working on something totally different right now. Um, I mean, I, I have not given up the ghost of intelligence and I am still thinking about, uh, like I said, the question of emotions, talking with some um, colleagues about where to go with that. But I am very fortunate to be on sabbatical this semester and I have used my time away from teaching duties to really dig deep into a new project that I'm working on that has to do with the French protectorate in Madagascar at the end of the 19th century. So the time frame of the French protectorate is 1885 to 1895 when France invades and annexes the whole island. Um, and there is a spy connection in a little way and that the way I kind of got involved with this was at the very tail end of writing my dissertation in grad school at UCLA was finding a fascinating story of an African-American diplomat, a man named John Lewis Waller, who had was the ambassador, the American ambassador to Madagascar during the French, the time of the French protectorate. And after his term came to an end, he stuck around the island, was working on some investment opportunities, was granted a piece of land by the Malagasy Queen that he hoped to develop into his own colony. Um, super interesting story, but the French did not like this 
man and did not like that he was getting land that they hoped to develop. Um, and once the French military actually arrived to begin the process of annexation, this um, American Waller gets arrested as a spy, gets tried by a military tribunal, convicted, sent on a boat in chains from Madagascar to France to serve out a 20-year prison sentence. He is released early thanks to pressure from the Cleveland administration and the Black press and Black leadership in the United States. So I am trying to dig into his story and learn a little bit more about what's going on in Madagascar during that decade and having a lot of fun doing some brand new research. Well, maybe when you uh, finish that, we can have you back on the podcast. All right. Well, talk to me in a couple decades. <laughs> <laughs> we can wait. We're patient. Okay. <laughs> uh, Deborah Bauer, uh, thank you for joining us on the uh, New Books Network. <laughs> thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. And thanks for uh, reading my book. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.